Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 10% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code interviews. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code interviews. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you again from Washington, D.C., We are joined today by someone who's joined us before and someone for whom we have great respect, Noah Bookbinder, who is the president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW, and has been the president there for, well, gee, it looks like you're coming up on your eighth anniversary. Amazing. (laughs) Eventful eight years for ethics and uh, responsibility in Washington. Of course, today the news is led with a trickling out of information from Atlanta about that grand jury. I was got up early this morning eager for some exciting and interesting news. I didn't really get any from what I've heard so far. What did you get from all that? I think that's right. I think that in some ways the most significant thing about what what we saw today is what's not in there. You know, we don't know whether the the grand jury and this is a special grand jury that was looking into whether uh, Donald Trump and others improperly interfered in the 2020 election in Georgia and on that question we didn't really find anything out today we we got no information as to whether the special grand jury found uh substantive criminal offenses in relation to interfering with the election we don't know if they recommended indictments on on those substantive issues and you know that doesn't that doesn't give us a lot to go on i think it's also probably a good thing that it doesn't give uh folks like donald trump who like to spin everything that gets out there and, and defend themselves preemptively doesn't give them a lot to work with either to sort of try to to manipulate public opinion about this so what you know what did we learn we learned a couple of things we learned that the grand jury unanimously found that there was no significant voter fraud in the the Georgia election in, in 2020. I think we knew that already, but it's significant to have this body that saw a lot of evidence coming to that conclusion. Uh, that's both significant for the American people to confirm that that this this issue of massive fraud in the 2020 election was was bogus. It was a lie made up by by Donald Trump and his supporters. It's also significant because it it undercuts a potential defense by whoever gets charged, if if people are charged, you know, who could say, well, we 
we were just trying to vindicate what really happened because there was all this fraud out there. And, and this is something that, that this is a finding that that could undercut that. The other thing we found out is that a majority of the grand jury determined that one or more witnesses who testified before them may have lied and may have committed perjury and, and should be charged if, if the district attorney finds that compelling. We didn't find out much more about that either. It's a, it's a one paragraph, pretty summary description. So we don't know who, who they're talking about and, and what they said. But it is consistent with a case that, that um, you know, has really to this point been all about lies and to know that those lies continued uh, into what went on before this, this special grand jury is, is, I suppose, significant. But the big stuff is yet to come. And that will, I think, happen when District Attorney Fonnie Willis decides if she's going to indict anybody. And at that point, you know, we'll see, we'll see what she does in terms of an indictment and we'll see the rest of this report. But when's that going to happen? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I think really everybody's been looking at their watches for, for two years. And now we've got a bunch of people who are saying, gee, you know, an election's around the corner. We already have two Republicans declared for that election. That's only going to increase. That's only going to make it more difficult to come down with decisions like this. You know, on our show, on a fairly regular basis, I uh, plead for insight with people on this time. And, you know, Barb McQuaid, for example, uh, has said several times she thinks it'll happen in the spring because the summer's too late. And that that's true both for Fannie Willis and also for DOJ. What's your own thinking on this? So I'll start by saying I don't have any inside knowledge on this. This is I'm, I'm speculating just as much as everybody else is. But I think my answer is similar, but not quite the same. I think, you know, one of the things that's instructive is that um, Georgia has a, a speedy trial act, which, which essentially says that, that when there's an indictment, the person who's indicted can demand a speedy trial. And, and that generally means a trial starting within two months or so within the, the, um, the kind of grand jury, the pendency of the current grand jury in, in that jurisdiction. And, you know, one possible way that, that Donald Trump or whoever is a defendant in this case could play it is to insist on that speedy trial to try to jam the prosecutors and sort of get them to go before they're ready. And because of that, it oftentimes prosecutors in that jurisdiction bring cases at the beginning of, of a grand jury period to sort of give themselves a little bit of a buffer. If that happens, we might be looking at early March. That's sort of the next period which, where that applies. You know, that's, that's a, several layers of speculation that may not enter into their calculation at all, but I do, you know, but that's possible. I do think it's right that, that, Bonnie Willis is going to want to move quickly. You know, uh, she's not going to want to get further into the election season. It seems like a significant part of her process is done. So I think the late winter, spring is a good bet there. Um, my gut is that the Justice Department is likely to be a bit slower than that. I think that Jack Smith just came in as the special counsel. And my sense is that he's going to try really hard to not slow things down, um, you know, not have his taking over of the case, delay it significantly from where it would have been. 
but that uh, it was going to take a little time for him to get up to speed. I also think, frankly, the Justice Department was pretty slow to turning to this in a serious way. I think they are there, but I think that that Fulton County, Georgia, was much faster in getting to that point. And the Justice Department is both playing a little bit of catch up, but also I, I'm guessing now, and with a you know a little bit of an understanding of what kind of prosecutor Jack Smith is, that they're trying to be very thorough. They're trying to really make sure they have it right. They had a lot of catching up to do. And I think that's going to take a little time. I think it is true that, you know, 2024 is too late. And so if I had to guess, I would say, you know, mid to mid to late 2023 for the Justice Department to, to do whatever it is they're going to do. But I think that, that Georgia will be at least a few months before that. Again, we'll, see. well, the Justice Department has not been inactive this week, and we've learned that they have subpoenaed the vice president and also the former chief of staff. And so I have a two-part question on this. A, what do you make of all that? But B, um, you know, the vice president has come up with this novel reason for not agreeing to the subpoena, or at least he's floating that, uh, which is to say that the speech and debate clause of the Constitution prohibits senators and representatives for being arrested or prosecuted or questioned on matters pertaining to their job. And he's arguing that since he was president of the Senate, that it refers to him. My own interpretation, and I did attend one semester of law school, my my own interpretation is that the Constitution actually refers to the vice president elsewhere and not as being a senator. He's a vice president. And then there are a set of rights and, and responsibilities, you know, appertaining to that job. And that just because he's in the Senate chamber does not make him a senator. But, you know, you're a, you're a lawyer. So how, how wrong am I? Well, first of all, as far as, you know, what to make of Jack Smith's team subpoenaing the former vice president and, and the former chief of staff, I, I find that thoroughly unsurprising. I think that, you know, this is a serious prosecutor with a serious team looking into potential criminal conduct that I think is among the most consequential, literally in, in the history of our country. And this was an effort to, to prevent the smooth transition of power to uh, undermine a, a free and fair election. It resulted in a violent insurrection that attacked the seat of government. It's, you know, this is as serious as, as, as it gets. Of course, they're going to want evidence from anybody who, who um, saw what happened and, uh, you know, and played a role in it. And Mike Pence and Mark Meadows were, were right there in the middle of it. And so I, I would think it would be that you couldn't really do this investigation in a, in a thorough and correct way without trying your best to get their evidence. And so that's what uh, the special counsel is doing. So I, I think it's unsurprising. It, it certainly indicates that this is a, a serious and hard-hitting investigation. It's, 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 it's too difficult to try to bring in somebody like Mike Pence to, for, to, make, to be worth doing if you weren't actually taking this seriously and actually trying to, to make a, a real determination and make a case. So I think that's, that's positive. It's not surprising, but it's very positive. As to Pence's assertion of the, the speech or debate clause, you know, with, with a little bit of a caveat that there's not a whole lot of law out there on the speech or debate clause. 
and what law there is kind of points in all directions. So it's, it's, it's hard to know where courts are going to go on speech or debate clause questions. And our, it's hard to know where our current Supreme Court is, is going to go on a lot of things uh, if it gets to them. All of that said, um, it strikes me as not a particularly serious claim. I think it's, it seems pretty straightforward looking at the constitution that, that, uh, the vice president is, is more a creature of the executive branch than the, than the legislative branch. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird claim. And as I look at it, it, it looks to me more like Mike Pence wanting to make a show of resisting the special counsel, which I think is somebody potentially looking to run for president as a Republican right now may seem like, you know, kind of where he needs to go politically. It looks more like that than somebody trying to actually succeed in, in defeating a subpoena. I think it's a little disappointing because if anybody saw and understood that the, the danger of, of the conduct that we saw in the lead up to January 6th, 2021. And on that day, it was Mike Pence. I mean, like that's who's, I think, it, I think you can't get around the fact that Mike Pence's life was literally in danger and, uh, and, and that his constitutional functions were, you know, were the ones that, that uh, a lot of this was aimed at stopping and he got it on that day and he acted in a courageous way. And, um, to, to see him doing at this point, anything other than fully cooperating with an investigation is just disappointing because he's made clear that he knows better. So I, I do find that disappointing. I wonder if this is kind of a non-serious attempt to evade the subpoena and if, you know, he will sort of rely on a court to shoot it down and then go in and testify. One thing that I thought was a passing interest in the, the Georgia case was that the president former president had not been called to testify there. To our knowledge, he has not been called to testify in front of the Justice Department. Do you think it's a indicative of anything at all that he has not been? Or do you think, A, that either waits to the end, or B, there is a sense that he will contest all that to such an extent that it's a needless impediment or see something else that I don't know. I think it's both of those things. You know, I think that there's a whole lot of evidence as to what Donald Trump did and what he thought of Donald Trump was talking all through that, all, all through the period leading up to January 6th and on that day in ways that were public and in ways that have come out through other people's testimony. Later, there's a lot of evidence about what he thought and what he did. There is no particular indicia that he would be truthful because, you know, sort of why start now? I mean, he, he's, you know, he's never been truthful about any part of this. And even in terms of catching him in false statements, I mean, you never bring someone in to testify for the purpose of catching them in false statements. That's a perjury trap. And it's not, you know, it's not something that, that prosecutors should ever do, but he's already made a lot of false statements. So there's, there, you know, he's, um, it, it's hard to see what you'd necessarily accomplish other than even this point of, look, he was an important participant and witness and you, and you want to, you want to try to, to talk to all those people, but because, you know, there's so much out there already and we know that he will not cooperate. He will obstruct the house January 6th committee did subpoena him and he not surprisingly refused to comply. 
you know, we've seen at this point years of how Donald Trump handles investigations and how he handles litigation. And, you know, he always fights. And where, you know, as we talked about before, uh, timing matters that, that, you know, that this is going to be, would be a much harder case to bring in 2024 than in 2023. They may have made the calculation that it's, it's not going to get them much and it's going to delay things a lot. So I think, you know, we're, we're likely to see one of two things. One is that they just don't even try because they don't think it's worth it at both the state and the federal level. And the other is sort of what you said, which is that they, they get all the rest of their evidence. They wait till the end. They basically give him a shot, see if he wants to come in to, to try to, you know, get as much evidence as they can and, and be as fair as they can. And then if, as everybody, you know, assumes he, he fights it, then they go forward without him. But I don't think that any, any prosecutor is thinking that talking to Donald Trump is going to be a major part of their investigation, that a successful part of their investigation. It's sort of a question of whether, whether they feel the need to check that box or not. So let's go and cast the net a little wider in terms of issues of ethics and responsibility in Washington. We also learned this week that Matt Gates is not going to be prosecuted for trafficking or anything else that he did from DOJ. Do you read anything into that or did they just not have enough evidence? I think they just didn't have enough evidence. It seems to me that they made a serious run at this. I mean, they actually gave plea deals and immunity to, to other people, which who were pretty bad people and, and in terms of what they had, had done, associates of, of Gates. And you don't do that unless you're seriously considering kind of being, bringing charges against the bigger fish. So, you know, it seems like, like they tried, you know, my, my sense is that these aren't necessarily easy cases to make. You'd be relying on testimony from seriously flawed witnesses. Now, of course, that's true of a lot of criminal cases and, you know, and in a lot of cases are built on flawed witnesses because that's often who's around when, you know, despicable criminal activity happens. But they may just have decided that, um, that it just wasn't strong enough. You know, I think that as I read it and I haven't, I haven't had a chance to really dig in, but I think what they said, what, what I saw was that, uh, there are not going to be charges brought around the, the trafficking angle, um, but that there still conceivably could be on other, in other areas like campaign finance. And, you know, so, I mean, it seems like Matt Gates was doing a lot of unsavory stuff and, and, and maybe some of that will ultimately still come back, uh, for, for, for some kind of accountability. But, you know, I think it's, you know, obviously we don't, we don't, we're not privy to what all the evidence was. Certainly what we saw publicly in the press seemed absolutely despicable. And so in that sense, it's unfortunate that there's not accountability, uh, but I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that there are any, you know, considerations here other than the strength of the evidence. Speaking of despicable, George Santos is still in the Congress and, uh, you know, I don't see on the horizon, you know, any anything that suggests he's he's going to leave it anytime soon. Do you? I don't. Unfortunately, I mean, this is you know, it's it's outrageous that you have somebody who, as far as we can tell now, lied about essentially everything about himself. I'm just a vast array of 
you know, really sort of hard to believe, uh, lie. I mean, hard, hard things that it's hard to believe somebody would lie about. And, you know, we're starting to see more and more coming out about potentially fraudulent conduct that took advantage of other people. There are, you know, the New York Times just wrote a couple of days ago about, you know, $365,000 in campaign spending that is totally unaccounted for. So, you know, there, there's, it's just that the dimensions keep on increasing and, you know, it is, there's just no way that this is somebody who can seriously and responsibly represent the people he was sent to Congress to represent. Um, and, and, and he, you know, he should have resigned a long time ago. He has made clear that he has no intention of resigning whether that's because he's just somebody who uh, sort of always pushes ahead to, you know, for his own self-preservation and his own gain, or whether it's because it is a bargaining chip to, to hold um, if the investigations get more serious, you know, that, that's unclear. But, he's, but, but what, is, what does seem clear is that he has no intention of going anywhere. And, you know, the, the one person who probably can make him resign is Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, uh, who has every incentive not to, because McCarthy and the Republicans hold a very, very slim majority in the House. And, you know, if, if um, Santos leaves, it's, it's possible that that seat reverses party. And that, that makes that majority even slimmer and makes it harder for McCarthy to do the things he wants to do. You know, so given that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see it changing very soon. On the other hand, you know, certainly in what I've seen in, in my time at, at, at crew and, and going back to my days as a federal corruption prosecutor is when you have someone, particularly a public official who lies about a lot of things that, that lying usually doesn't stop at the border of, of legality. Um, usually they're also lying on campaign finance forms and financial disclosure forms. And there's plenty of evidence on George Santos's financial disclosures at this point that there's something weird going on. I think we, we don't yet have publicly clear evidence that he's lying, uh, but there's a lot that looks often strange. And, you know, when in the past we've seen forms that look like that, it very often leads to discovery of, of criminal misconduct. And so I think, you know, you, I, I have to think that there's a large probability that this will be going to a place where George Santos gets criminally charged and eventually either pleads guilty or is first convicted. And at that point, uh, even that doesn't necessarily get him out of Congress. We've had people serving as members of Congress from prison, but it's hard to imagine that he stays in Congress if you really end up with criminal charges and particularly a criminal conviction. I think at that point, you have to figure that that leadership will, will push him out or, or he'll leave on his own, but that's just going to take time. And, and we don't see a lot of indication that he's going to leave until that happens. I have one other question about George Santos and then a bigger, broader question, but this is the point in the show where we take a brief break and we say to the folks who are joining the general public, thanks. And if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast or the rest of all of our podcasts, then you need to become a member. And so you should go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership for, I think, five bucks a month. You get to be a member and support all of our podcasts. And I can say that we got two or three new ones that will be launched in the next couple of weeks. So that means more bonus content, and it means a better, richer feed for all of you. So 
this would be a good time to sign on. For those who are leaving now, bye-bye. For our members, stand by.